This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and today I'm joined by Rob Haynes, the head of research IT and an honorary lecturer in the University of Manchester's Department of Computer Science. Rob, you wear a ton of hats from helping researchers directly to creating and using sustainable software to even saying, you know what, we can do this better. Let's figure out a new way. So first, welcome to RSC Stories. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you've been through a long journey in the last 10 or so years, and I think you and your colleagues were really the first to invent this idea of a research software engineer. Without biasing you to specific content that you've written, I want to start out by giving you a chance to take us back in time, a decade or maybe less, maybe more, and telling us where you came from and how you stumbled on and impacted this RSE verse. Let's go back right back to my first job at the University of Manchester. I applied to be a research associate for a project called Reality Grid back in the days of when Grid was a thing before cloud. And I worked as a software engineer on that project. Um, really not an RA at all. Um, that continued for a number of years across different projects, still had the job title RA, still wasn't really an RA, more writing software and, and not papers. And that continued for um, for a few years. I moved into Carol Goebel's research group in computer science in Manchester, where I continued to be a, a software engineer working on research projects and, and probably nominally job titled as a research associate. And at that time, it was quite early on in the days of the Software Sustainability Institute in the UK. I went to one of the collaborations workshops that they had in 2012 and met up with a group of people who were all sort of in similar situations to me. We'd been doing this research associate sort of postdocing job for a number of years, you know, over a decade by this point, and we were sort of starting to sort of say, well, we've been writing software, not papers, but the software is really important. You know, some of this great research wouldn't have happened without it, but we don't have a career. Some of the people who were there at that time was, was James Hetherington, who went on to chair the first of the incarnations of the, the Association of Research Software Engineering. But we basically got into lots of talking and, and it was an unconference, so you could choose the nature of what you wanted to talk about. And every single session, myself and James and others were in this, we were sort of banging on about where's our career, what should we do about it? And eventually someone, I think it was Neil Chu Hong, said, well, you should unionize. So he said, okay, let's do that, but we need to call ourselves something. So after some toing and froing, we came up with the idea of research software engineering, not claiming that it was anything new, it's just that no one had named it before. And we all went our separate ways and we picked it up in various guises in our local institutions. And then the Software Sustainability Institute picked it up as a policy that they wanted to really push and go for. And that really gave us an immense amount of momentum. From there, for me, it went a bit quiet, I would say, for a couple of years in terms of real progress, but I was spending quite a lot of time at the University of Manchester trying to rustle up support with people at the university and suggesting this would be a good idea. And I had loads of support from senior academics as well, such as Carol Goebel, who I was still in the team with. Eventually, probably a couple of years later, about 2014, IT services at the university were going through a transformation. On the advice of senior academics, decided to institute a new area of IT services, which was research IT. 
And within that, there was going to be some scope as to what it might look after. And I was asked to sort of input into what it should be. So I said, well, obviously we should have a team of research software engineers. So that was taken on board and the job was advertised and I went for it and thankfully got it as the lead for that team. And then took the team from about probably about four or five of us to begin with and took the team through a few iterations and added people and ended up at about 18, 19, 20 people in a couple of years. So we, we managed to grow really quickly. And then last year, I had the opportunity to become the head of research IT and took that then. So I've been in this role for about 12 or 14 months. Awesome. So I have some questions. You mm -hmm. first at the beginning said back when grid was a thing. So yes. for listeners that may not be familiar, what exactly is grid and is it still around today? One level, the grid was to do with actually getting people access to computational resources. One could put a computer on the grid and then people with the right credentials or certificates could log in and, and use it. And the two primary services, there was the National Grid Service in the UK, which had four or five machines dotted around the UK. And there was the TerraGrid in the US, which had a number of sites were involved. And then um, some sites sort of put existing supercomputers onto the grid. And it made for a system where the goal was to have a single authorization framework, which made things very easy. If you wanted to run multiple jobs across multiple machines, you could do it with in one go. It turned out that it was actually quite a complex thing to do. And a lot of it was politics rather than technology. It was one of these things that suddenly allowed people to use computational resources uh, that they wouldn't necessarily have been able to use. Is it still around? I think it probably isn't in the form that we would have recognized it back there. I think it's fair to say that a lot of what we did with the grid and the sorts of things that we managed to achieve were probably, if not direct inspiration for the cloud, we see a lot of what was done back then in the cloud. And in a sense, the, the cloud commoditized the grid and frankly made it a lot easier to use. I think that's probably what's left of the grid these days. So you mentioned that faculty or researchers played a role in helping to create your research IT group. How did you rally those troops? A lot of this stuff is absolutely down to luck and I fully acknowledge that. We had an engaged set of senior academics at the university. They were already using computational resources. They wanted more. The university probably wasn't doing as much in central IT as they would have liked to help researchers. In that sense, I don't want to take too much credit there. Those who did do the lobbying had an effect and I think it was all happening at about the right time. And we were lucky in, in the sense that the, the research software engineering name had come about at about the right time to actually be able to talk about these things possibly in a more concrete way than we had in the past. Having the name was so helpful because we could say, well, you know, there's this research software engineer idea. Wouldn't it be great if the university had this sort of thing? And it's all good timing and luck, maybe. So the million dollar question that I know at least a lot of groups in the U.S. that are trying to get started are thinking, how is your group funded? The simplest answer to that is it's funded by research projects. It's not entirely. We do do some what we, I suppose, call business as usual, baseline funded work. The growth we've managed to have has all been around funded projects. The university were really helpful and we wouldn't have got, I don't think, anywhere near where we've got without the university support. We were able to start the group with some baseline funding and effectively on the promise that we would pay it back. And so far that's worked. So we've kept track of the money that's been coming into the group and we've compared it to what the salaries and so on of the people in the group have been. And, and we've shown 
over the years that we've bring more money in than we had agreed to bring in so we've always been able to sort of show that we put value to the university did you find that you had to take on more of a managerial role Yes, almost immediately. The job I initially applied for in research IT was research software engineering manager. I had a word conversation with the, at the time, the director of IT services and said, you know, in your experience, what do you see in terms of the ratio of management to development work? I was motivated to do the group leadership, but I, I was still keen to not lose the, the hands on development entirely. And I remember him saying, oh, well, it'll probably be about 20% management to begin with, and it'll, it'll probably go up. So anyway, I went into it thinking, oh, that's fine. You know, a day a week management, that's fine. And obviously, almost immediately, the management load was higher than that, even with a small group. The management load was probably more, more like 50%. And as the time went on and the shape of research IT sort of changed a bit, eventually the management load got quite high. We actually then did a sort of mini reorganization within research IT and had a bit of a change of job title from research software engineering manager to head of research software engineering. It came with a bump, if you like, and it came with even more management. So at that point, I relinquished the very last vestiges of any aspiration to keep my hands dirty in the, in the programming. And really at that point, it started to become a thing. I came to the realization that if I was rolling up my sleeves and doing some programming at that point, then something had probably gone wrong. Do you feel like that was a sacrifice or do you look back on it and kind of know it was the right thing and you do everything the same again? So I think at the time I probably thought of it as a bit of a sacrifice. I think by the time I'd got down to zero development work, it had been, it had been happening slowly anyway. And so I was sort of getting used to the idea. As much as I'd like to be able to do that sort of thing, uh, it still interests me. Yeah, I do keep my sort of eye in a bit on with, with open source projects in my what I laughably call my spare time. The team got to a size that it really needed dedicated leadership. And I think it's probably at the point where I sort of start, stopped thinking myself as a manager and started to think of myself as a leader and went down that sort of track instead. And since then, I haven't really had time to miss it because I'm so busy with all the other things I have to do. So let's talk about some of the cool aspects of being a leader, because I imagine when you're a leader of a group, you're not just like, oh, let's have meetings and talk about boring things. It's really that you get to kind of shape the future for your group, what people's roles are, how they are trained, what the projects are, sort of the long-term vision. Can you walk us through some of the steps that you took in your vision at the time and then your vision now? So right at the start, the vision was barely a vision. It, we just need to have enough work to keep ourselves going. And it was a question of, wow, I hope this isn't a terrible mistake. As we got busier, the focus starts to change and I started to delegate some of the day-to-day -day talking about projects and, and so on. So we have three faculties at the University of Manchester, with the Faculty of Science and Engineering, the Faculty of Biology, Medicine and Health, and the Faculty of Humanities. So I have a leader in my RSC team who looks after each of those. We've seen a huge rise in the amount of projects that are requiring mobile applications, either for data collection or for patient information and that sort of thing. So we've actually got someone who looks after mobile projects as well. The sort of thinking there was to how can we divide the work up, I suppose, in a sense, and keep it manageable. We had so many projects and needed to have focus on each different one. But equally, I was very keen because one of the things that I always loved as being an RSE myself was 
the fact that I might work on a health-related project one month and a humanities project the next month. And, and the variety is something that people still talk about in interview. And I'm, when I'm interviewing people, we ask them the inevitable question that appeals to you about this job. I mean, variety always comes up. So I didn't want to then divide the whole team into these silos, I guess you might say. So one of the things that I was really keen to maintain was that idea that someone could work on different projects in different domains. And one of the other reasons that I really wanted to do this was because I'd seen myself how useful it was. And you know, it makes some real leaps with putting someone from a particular domain to work in a different domain and just see how they look at things slightly differently. I've seen that too, that the key skill set of an RC isn't to exist in one silo or one domain, but to be really diverse and even willing to dive into something that you have no idea about. Yes, exactly. And it's one of the key traits that I think an RC has is this ability to look at a problem from a different perspective and enables people to see what might initially look like two completely different problems to see them as related. I have this impression that groups in the UK are better connected between universities. Is that true? And if so, how did it happen? And what's an example of how you work together? It may be that the fact that, you know, we started off in that way where groups were sprouting up you know, with some time between them, it meant that people sort of get in touch with each other and say, oh, we were thinking of doing this. How did you do that? I suppose we quickly built up a sort of network of RSE leaders, which we then actually did turn into an actual Google group or something like that. And then we started to have RSE leaders meetings where we got together every so often and we had a proper Chatham House rules and I think that really helped. We were all scheming together behind the scenes with our RSE leaders meeting and helping each other get started. So for a little quick change of directions, you mentioned that you are super busy, but you also are a lecturer. So what kinds of topics do you lecture on and how is being a lecturer either important to your work or important for your personal mental health? Naturally, I lecture in the areas of software engineering. It's interesting how it came about. I was still in Carol Goebel's group at the time, so this, is, this predates me being in the RSE team, and they needed someone to take over some of the lecturing on an MSc module. Having a practicing software engineer to help with some of the instruction will be good for the course and for the students. I said, yeah, well, I'm into that. I like testing. I like testing and development. So, so I did, started doing that, and, and you know, all these years later, I'm still doing it. So I really enjoy that. I really enjoy teaching software engineering. It's something that I can get quite passionate about, and it's a nice change of pace. Interestingly, having honorary lecturer in my email signature, I think probably did really help in the early days of the RSE team. I think sometimes being able to identify myself, you know, having a foot in both camps, I think that probably helped. I think it probably got me through a couple of doors that I wouldn't have got through so I think from a personal perspective, I get a lot out of it. I still find software engineering fascinating. And one of the nice things about doing the lecturing is that, that I also do occasionally get to co-supervise students doing MSc projects or third-year projects in the Department of Computer Science. It's also a really nice change of pace to be up in front of a class, and it's just kind of quite rewarding. How can an RSE group be competitive with industry to attract talent? 
I think it's not something I've had to deal with too much yet myself. So Manchester doesn't have a huge financial sector, so we're not competing with the investment banks for software engineering talent. We don't have a huge tech sector in Manchester, although that is growing. I think we see people who are motivated to work for the organisation. I've done a round of interviews just this week, actually, and the number of people who say, I'm really motivated to work for the university, or I'm really motivated to work in research, or, you know, I did a PhD and then left for industry, and now I want to come back because I want to get back into research. I think we offer slightly different things. The pay isn't as good, but it's a lot more flexible. And I think generally, you know, when people get to work on projects which are helping to cure cancer, so I think the job satisfaction you get from that just speaks for itself. And I do see a lot of people, that's where their motivation comes from primarily. What are the biggest problems or challenges that you think we still face? I think we're still quite a young profession. I've often worried that someone might come along and look at the university organisation and draw a ring around the, the RSE group and say, they seem like a bit of an anomaly. What are we going to do about them? Even though I know that we do great stuff and I know that we've got so much work that we struggle to know what to do with it, you know, we're covering our costs and that sort of thing. I still think the biggest threat is that we're not part of the fabric of research in a traditional sense. So I think we are part of the fabric in the sense of projects we work on. All that being said, I still worry that we're just not as established as, for example, academic staff. And, and I think that's always going to be a bit of a risk. I definitely worry about that too. Just having a group is great, but there's this deep historical university fabric, as you called it, that we also want to be a part of. And I feel like that process will be slower. <laughs> I think we're a good place because I think we're at a great position to say the value of, of a research software engineer isn't just that of having some bespoke software for your research project. I think it goes deeper and I think it starts to weave itself into the fabric of research as a whole, where just the sorts of things that research software engineers do by default are obviously good things to be done in research and we are the people to do that so i think that's really a great strength we have so we're coming up on time i'll just ask you one more question selfishly something that i think a lot about is how we can take our roles and have fun what kind of practices or even mental tricks that you might have do you have to make sure that you're having fun that's a tough one I just find problem solving fun. I find programming fun. I suppose other people are in the same boat. I've always derived fun from the projects I've worked on. Being able to sort of get hold of a problem and figure it out, you know, maybe read a couple of papers to figure out some technique that's new to me that I haven't used before and then codifying it into code in an efficient way. I've always kind of found rather fun myself. Yeah, marks me out as a bit of a weirdo. What else would I do for fun? I don't know, really. Yeah, sometimes it's just the spirit that you bring. So if you love your work and you have fun with your work and you bring that, for example, to a lecture, like it just shines through. So I think you're right. I think I think if someone's obviously enjoying their work and finds the process enjoyable and fascinating, then, then that absolutely comes through. And it's certainly something that I've always felt with software development. Yeah, I think I just derive the fun from doing the new things. Are there any specific projects on GitHub or elsewhere that you'd want to give a quick shout out to? 
So my favorite programming language is Ruby. It's not Python like everyone else's. I think the things that I really like um, out there in terms of the open source community that's come out of a lot of the stuff that people have been doing in Ruby is things like GitHub itself. That's a Ruby platform. And things like Travis CI came out and Code Climate and all those sorts of things. It's one of the things that I really like is that those sorts of tools all came out initially came out of the Ruby community and have since obviously diversified into all the other the languages and so on. But it's just that sort of sense, I think, that clearly there was a group of well-motivated people in that community who said we could build some tools here that would really help programmers everywhere and software engineers. And so I think those services are all great and, and I know they're not all open source and so on. In terms of sort of more unknown ones, I think there was sort of research focused ones I'd call out would be maybe things like the workflow tools I used to work on used to work on a tool called Taverna which probably isn't going so much anymore but that sort of spawned all kinds of things like common workflow language and things like that yeah I think those kinds of generalist workflow infrastructure general research tools those tend to be the ones that I enjoy participating in as well one more Ruby on Rails application that I'll point out is I think Discourse I think so, yeah. Discourse is Ruby on Rails. Airbnb was Ruby on Rails, I think. That's not a research tool, of course, but lots of us use it for traveling to conferences. It's all a big melting pot out there. Well, Rob, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you. A lot of us have really followed your career and read articles. Like I read an article by you called The Craftsperson, The Scholar, that I just really loved. And we just really admire the work that you've done and how you've really led this effort. I'm grateful that we've been able to talk across time zones to have you on RSE Stories today. That's lovely. It's been really nice to talk to you. And I do watch with very much interest the state of RSE over in the US and indeed talk to lots of people about it um, lots of times. And so I would like to wish the US community all the best. And it's really great to have you with us and Germany and the Nordic countries all together. As I said before, when you've got more than one place doing something, you all look slightly less mad. And I think that's really nice. On behalf of the U.S. community, thank you, and I totally agree.